Welcome to the podcast where we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, and add something borrowed. Well, there's no sketch this time, but we've borrowed some facts off the info text to make <laughs> something who. Wow. Uh, yeah, hello, I'm Richard, and we're back with Something Who podcast episode 61, and we're going to discuss a couple of Doctor Who stories set in the middle of the second millennium. First, we'll have a look at Restoration Period Fifth Doctor Story, The Visitation, from season 19. And after that, we'll go even further back in time for Tudor era, Tenth Doctor Story, The Shakespeare Code. And that one is, of course, from series three. So after stretching the number of contributors on the last episode, we've got a pared down panel this time. And uh, first up, it's Paul lately returned to the multimedia experience that is the Doctor Who Missing Episodes podcast. Oh, goodness, yeah. Yeah, yeah. also the acclaimed writer of many a Big Finish story. Hello, Paul. Hello. Yes. In particular, the, uh, the Big Finish story, The Prince of Denmark, which basically features Shakespeare and thus should be included in this discussion tonight. But I'm going to do my best <laughs> to rein Excellent. it in. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll look forward to that. Yeah, and we're never quite sure what format the Missing Episodes podcast is going to pop up in next, but it, uh, it's been very entertaining the last few weeks. Stage play. Um, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the live experience. Yeah. I think the nicest comment we had when we did our recent run of videos was that we were better looking than the viewer had expected. Oh, right. <laughs> I chose to take that as a compliment. Yeah. But he might have meant that he thought we were so appalling <laughs> that even <laughs> even the low quality of our, the visages that were presented was yeah. still an improvement on what he'd feared. Who knows? Hmm. Excellent. Also joining us is science and astronomy writer Giles. Evening all. Who, who last time we encountered him was in the early grip of COVID, as we were recording, but thankfully uh, recovered, as indeed is Paul. So uh, good evening, Giles. Yes, evening. Yeah, happily, happily recovered, back in the land of the living. Just back from a couple of weeks in Germany with the in-laws. So that was quite fun. I can't believe I, can't believe I was coming down with COVID when when we last recorded and that seems like ages and ages ago now but mm. but I guess it was yeah well it took me ages and ages and ages to edit it that was part of the problem <laughs> hence going for the unplugged yeah approach this time yeah but it, but it was I mean it was fun I mean there, there was definitely fun episodes to edit but there was a lot in it so mm. uh, yeah yeah and we had uh, we had some suggestions last time that the uh, the sketch it outdate its welcome. So uh, we'll see. We'll see how we go <laughs> with sketchless tonight. Uh, if there's a if there's a general clamour for it to return, or, or or if you know we just feel like we want to do one, then then we might. But uh, you've got your wish on this occasion. Yeah, humbug. We know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well let's kick off then with the visitation, written by Eric Sayward, and directed by Peter Moffat which was recorded in May 1981 and then broadcast in February 1982. I was just going to start by taking us back to 1982, I mean, a, a year that all three of us are relatively familiar with, but then uh, I, I wonder just quite how much we remember of it. I mean, I was, I was just chewing over the fact that uh, in, in February 1982 there were only three television channels. It was before the launch of Channel 4 later that year. I mean, some of us had VCRs, but other than that, then broadcast TV was your only option. So you had a choice of three and, and that was it. But it wasn't just telly. I mean, uh, microwave ovens were just coming into use. Not everybody had one. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so and there wasn't really a, any such thing as a ready meal in those days. If you wanted to buy stuff, you could use cash or check or, or maybe credit card if they accepted it. And many people were still paid cash in hand at the end of the week. But if you were paid into your bank account, it, it was it wasn't that easy to get hold of cash because I mean cash machines weren't weren't even very widespread in the early eighties. I, I mean I guess they're, they're not going to be very widespread soon either as well with the way things are going. There, there, there were no no mobile phones. You had you had a landline or a payphone and that was it. No GPS. You might, you might have had a trim phone. Yeah, yeah, trim phone. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's very true. Yeah, yeah. No GPS, so it was paper maps or nothing. You might have had a nice pocket calculator potentially maybe even a ZX81, but there wasn't much in the way of home computing. The the IBM PC launched the year before, but uh, it did, couldn't do very much, and the Apple Mac wouldn't launch for a couple of years yet. No web? 
you couldn't buy anything online. There was mail order, but you know, you, you basically had to mail it in, and it could take months for it to arrive. We all had digital watches, Richard. We'd arrived in the future. Was which, seemed like a pre- watch. which seemed like a pretty good idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> pretty cool uh, idea. Sorry. I mean, the great thing about the I early digital watches was, yeah, yeah, was <laughs> was that you know you couldn't actually tell the time unless you pressed the button. Though that was that was the uh, oh, yes. one of those early LED ones. Sure. How how far things have moved on? I've just received in the post today this Fitbit. Um, oh yeah. I'm always an early adopter. Uh, you won't have heard of them, but the, the latest craze. And now, if I lift it up and uh, it's lift it up and show it to my face, the blank screen shows me the time. I don't know how it knows I'm looking at it, but it somehow does. Isn't that magic? That's, that's how that's how we've come on in 40 yeah. years. Mm. I, I mean, I, I guess all of that was just to say that that perhaps 1982 is almost as foreign to us now as 1666 ah. was in uh, in 1982. I mean, I wonder where you're going with it. Yeah. <laughs> but but and but you, you tell know, that I mean, to the kids these days, and they don't believe you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they say the past is a foreign country, and of course, Doctor Who's always somewhat in the future. But yeah, you know, when you stop to think about it, it definitely was a different world. Mm. The other thing I was going to say, and then I will let you speak, is that uh, the, the visitation is one of those rare stories for me, which comes from that period from about season nineteen to season twenty-two, where I haven't just seen them on broadcast. I, I watched them many, many, many times in the eighties. Wow. The visitation maybe sort of 10 or 15 times haven't probably seen it much since the 80s but watching it back this weekend it was very clear in my head I did, did, didn't need to do much research and I, I could just sort of enjoy the story and, and remember all the scenes mm. yes I'm fairly familiar with it as well you mentioned video recorders yeah. there and we were not necessarily early adopters but sort of medium adopters where I mark this in the history of my uh media literacy is that we i wasn't able to record it on the first broadcast but i think yes. it was repeated was it the following summer yeah yeah it was well it was it, it was 1983 summer yes mm. right so we got a we got our video recorder late 82 yeah one of the first things we recorded was the Morecambe wise christmas show and i still have that tape the mm-hmm. tape cost about um i don't know was it a thousand pounds I can't remember. <laughs> at oh, least it was a bit eccentric of me to insist on keeping it My, <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, uh, I didn't really understand. Yeah, and then um, by the next summer, I think they repeated Kindred Visitation. Yes. So I, I've recorded them and kept them, so I've always known those two very well. Yeah, and that, actually, that was the same That was the same occasion that I recorded the Visitation. I also missed it on original broadcast, but I recorded it in 83. So uh, in, in, in Yorkshire area, there was a slight video fault round about the broken clock line, which um, I saw many times. It sort of just sort of came in and out. It didn't really miss much. But I, I didn't bother to record Kinder because I hadn't enjoyed it the first time round. But maybe yeah. that, that just shows what uh, a 14-year-old knows, doesn't it? <laughs> ah, well, my parents were late adopters of video technology, so, yeah. so this is well beyond, uh, well, well before any chance of me recording anything. But... Uh, Curiously enough, because they owned a pub in the late seventies where I grew up, uh, they were early adopters of microwave oven technology. No, <laughs> and uh, and in fact, there was a company called Jugs, who did do uh, what was the equivalent of ready meals, I guess, or uh-huh. like pub, pub catering stuff. That um, so yes, we had we were very familiar with the microwave oven, but you couldn't you couldn't watch the visitation on it. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But I did have, I think it was around this time, I probably started, yeah, that would make sense. I had a little cube-shaped Philips TV, black and white, in yeah. my bedroom, and it had a tape deck built into the side of it. Oh, right. And it was, uh, so, so I started with recording, audio recordings of things around this time, basically. And uh, so, again, I have over-familiarity with it, at least from the soundtrack point of view, because I listened to that to death. Right. So you were the you were the Graham Strong of the mid eighties then. <laughs> yes. Yeah. If only we need, we'd needed a Graham Strong in the mid eighties. <laughs> yeah. The other reason we might be familiar with it, even if we didn't have videos, was the novelisation because wasn't it the oh, first yes. one published from season nineteen? It was indeed. I have very fond memories. I remember it coming out with indecent haste and mm. uh, ex- what seemed quite exciting at the time, having a photo cover. Mm. Although very quickly that novelty wore off. <laughs> Certainly, by the time we got to Arkham Infinity and abominations <laughs> like that. Yes. Oh gosh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We also had, well, we may have had the uh, the book, the making of Doctor Who, which focused on the visitation. 
Damn. Anyone have that? So I feel like I, even without looking at the production text on the Blu-ray, mm. I feel like I have certain anecdotes about the making of the story embedded in my head. Ooh, I, okay. I feel like I know the see the ins and outs of how they destroyed the the android, yeah. as well as if mm. there'd been an entire Doctor Who confidential devoted to it. No, we can't. I'm not familiar with that. I, mm. I I do remember that book. It was about sort of I don't know sixty to eighty pages long, wasn't it? it wasn't yeah. it? With lots of photos in it. An oversized slim paperback with lots of yeah. photos. Yeah. It's not. I, I have my copy of the unfolding text by this time, of course. As <laughs> 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 any precocious thirteen-year-old. No. Yes. Yeah. This explains yeah. a lot about the way our lives have gone. Uh, since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fiercely flipping through it, going, "What's a trope?" <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I I bought the unfolding text. I did read the unfolding text. I'm not sure that I've understood the unfolding unfolding text to this moment. Mm. <laughs> I certainly haven't gone back to it. Semiotic thickness. Yes. Yeah, oh yes. <laughs> so, where should we start? So you two may have done some research. You can tell me how this came about. I'm more interested in when it was written, not when it was recorded. I know that the entire series was recorded out of order. This must have been written quite early, because it yes. uh, would have given Sayward time for this to have created an impression and allowed him to get the big job halfway through the run. Yeah, so Infotex suggested he was commissioned by Bidmead to write it. Mm. at some point, I guess, during the season 18 time frame. And how did that come about? Did he um, ask, did he put himself forward to the Doctor Who office or did Bidmead look for radio writers and find him that way? The latter, I believe. Mm. Yes, that's my understanding of it too. Right. I'm not sure whether it was as early as all of that because they, one thing that I hadn't gathered until now was that all of that stuff that I was I imbibed at the breast of DWM back in the <laughs> Back in the eighties, to have a disturbing, disturbing image for you <laughs> yeah. about the, about the fact that they filmed Castrovar the Fourth in order to let Davison bed in mm. so the character before they filmed the tricky regeneration story was all a load of hooey. Oh, really? They were still inventing fan myths <laughs> to. It's a basically it's a piece of spin on the part of J and T that was. It was right up there with anything that ever came from Moffat <laughs> in terms of uh, printing the legends. Yeah. Right. More hooey than ever before, is it? Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, apparently, because Fla- was it Flanagan and McCulloch were going to write the first? Right. It was all because of that. And because of that fell through, and then Bidmead was scrambling to write Castrovalva as a replacement. And they recorded this before Kinder. Yeah. And so Second, yeah. all of that stuff that's inserted at the start of the first episode, which was apparently put in there at J&T's Bears, they didn't know what the hell any of that was that they were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, with the quality of the dialogue, I'm not sure they would have been much better off even if they had recorded Kinder already. <laughs> While you were enjoying 24 hours augmented sleep from the... De- whatever it was. Delta yeah. Waverwind... Oh dear. Yes. So talk about wibbly wobbly timey wimey. I mean, the other reason why it's not very plausible is that actually, if if you watch now, going back to season 19, Davidson sort of explodes off the screen, really, in both Four to Doomsday and The Visitation. It doesn't really feel like he needs to get Mm. into his stride in time for um, Castrovalva, anyway. Mm. Yeah. I'm very interested in how the character of the Fifth Doctor evolves. Hmm. But, um,. I haven't got anything to say about it. Well, well I, I mean, I think that I think that is an interesting question because he's very bad-tempered in this one. He is. Mm. Now, where's that come from? Hmm. It's not the version of the Fifth Doctor that I like and cherish. Mm. But it also, he's... Uh, uh, yeah, this is the trouble of watching these ones out of context. Mm. Is this is he uniquely bad-tempered in this? I, I haven't rewatched well, every story. The start of Earthshock is very similar, isn't it? Well, that they would make sense. Same, same writer. Yes. I think Adric winds him up. Yeah. But I, th- I think quite. It... I think quite a bit of it was improvised or at least you know, added by Davison himself because I think he was channeling his memories of being a Hartnell fan hmm. and and wanting the grumpiness, and they then I think dialed it down, or he felt he'd overstepped. Right. Interesting. So, to the extent that it was coming via Davison, there may be some truth to the fact that the first, the fifth Doctor was inspired by the first Doctor. Because mm. later on, I remember 
it being suggested that Nathan Turner would claim that's what they were going for, hmm. and to the scorn of fans who say, well, you if that's the case, you completely misremembered and misinterpreted the first Doctor. And you only got away with... The only reason fans bought it at the time is because they, they hadn't seen him for 20 years, and the younger <laughs> generation had never seen him. And apart from perhaps an earthly child, <laughs> and thus yeah. swallowed this mm-hmm. idea that that's what the... But then Stephen Moffat did the same thing. Yeah. 50-odd years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> However many years later, another 30 years later... You can't really have the excuse of not having seen what the first Doctor's like in his many facets at this point. No. And um, in Castrovalva, when Davidson does a very brief impersonation of the first Doctor, along with the second, he uh, doesn't he go? Does he do a bit of the giggly first Hartnell, or am I imagining that? Is it just a, a lapel grabbing, grabbing Chesterton sort of moment? He d- he does. There is a sort of <laughs> bit made in it, isn't hmm. there? Yeah. So I don't know, but I'm sure you're right, Giles. I'm only. Repeating what I read. Watching it out of context, I'm th- what I see is a lot of stories being written under several different script editors. I mean, it, you could argue you got Bidmead and then Anthony Root and then Saywood all working on this. They're all being written out of order, all recorded out of order. Yeah. Nathan Turner has gone for a kind of soap opera approach. You can tell me if this, if there is ever been on record as saying that's what he's going for. But we've gone twice a week, like angels, you know. Yeah. So. And uh, the stories have a much stronger continuity between them before, down to the extent of, you know, it makes life very difficult for Big Finish because every single one starts with a recap of what happened last time. <laughs> Sometimes, apparently, because, well, I don't know. We've got scenes being added to Kinder because they were under length, so we get padding scenes of people arguing. Is it the start of Time Flight where they insert scenes to explain what happened at the end of Earthshock because they ran out of room? There's definitely one story, at least one story in this era where they, hmm. a big part of the Daily Mong is pushed forward to the beginning of the next story because they run out of time to fit it in. So you're never quite sure how much of it is down to production issues and how much is deliberately tying these things together because it might make it feel more real. Hmm. But anyway, where I was going with that is that it does, this interconnectedness, which it seems to borrow from soap opera, makes it feel a bit soapy in the worst way. I mean, I like soap operas at their best, but at their worst, they can be padded out with endless scenes of people arguing to create cheap drama. Hmm. And that seems to be what we have here. But is that at its worst in Saywood stories? And if so, where does that come from? He drops that later on. By the time he's found his voice, sadly towards the end of his time on the programme, but he actually developed... Well, I say found his voice. Some people would say he ends up just borrowing Robert Holmes's, but that's <laughs> a different different question. Yeah, why, are we, why are we getting all this? And even within this story, the dialogue, there's some really good stuff. The best stuff, and for my many the most hooey, is the stuff that he borrows from, um, I'm assuming, is in the style of the radio dramas that he's known for and that maybe Bedmead yes. uh, sought him out for. Richard Mace. Uh, we're going to talk about, let's talk about Richard Mace, shall we? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I, mean, I guess just, just before you do that, because I agree that we, it would be nice to talk about Richard Mace, it, it, it sort of feels like he's got these, the Doctor and his three companions, and what they're going to do, they're just going to bicker for a bit. And then, as you say, as as soon as Richard Mace comes on the scene, ah, oh, this is you know, everybody relaxes a bit, and it's a bit more florid. But also, they immediately have to sideline a couple of the companions because now you've got the Doctor and four companions, and that really isn't going to work. Indeed, yeah, it, it is Adric who draws the short straw, isn't it? And whether he knew where it was going with in Earth Shock, it, it feels like he does because he's starting to lay on the pathos here about Adric feeling hard done by. People often say that they have such... People who do not have fond memories of Adric sometimes say that that's because they what they remember is his later stuff, is the stuff with Davison, where he's the whiny, younger, you know, fourth wheel, hmm. and the one that you cheered when he blew up. But then when they go back <laughs> and watch him at the begin, from the start with, with the fourth Doctor, they, they think, good God, he's a much better character, much better performance, much stronger all round. Hmm. He's the one who suffers, isn't he? Hmm from being the established companion mm. when Tegan and then Nyssa come in they push him down the rankings and mostly in Eric Saywood's stories he also ends up becoming much less sympathetic mm. Tegan is good though, she's very, very feisty here Yeah, you do get this sense that possibly Saywood thinks the same as Peter Davison that Nyssa is the best companion from a practical nuts and bolts Doctor Who sense when you pair the fifth Doctor and Nyssa things get done, they, they talk mm. to each other like equals 
Yeah, well, so I think that's true, but I, but I also think that Tegan sucks a lot of oxygen out of of that relationship, so that actually she gets most of the best lines, and 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 she's more she's a clearer character, I suppose. So Nissa spends quite a lot of time in stories with with not a lot to do because writers seem to find it easier to to work out Tegan's character and, and involve her in the story. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And she's more likely to get herself into trouble. It feels like. Whereas with this again, we get you know, I guess there's two episodes at least of this where she's basically packed off back to the yep. TARDIS to get get on with her own plot. It starts well for her, and I was thinking, oh, this is interesting. As I say, you know, they, he seems to be pairing her with the Doctor as if he's identified that that's that she's the one you would have if you would if you were just going to have the one companion, mm. and that the other two can contribute character stuff and they can complicate the plot, but they won't necessarily drive it. But as you say, then all that comes to a grinding halt when she gets stuck in the TARDIS and seems to take three quarters of the story to build a simple machine, stopping <laughs> to stare at it and kick it occasionally. <laughs> I just and, and, and push it from from one end of the TARDIS set to the other as well, very slowly. <laughs> so, Richard Mace was a character from Eric Saywood's radio scripts, where he, I believe, was he not a, a detective figure? As well as being a high woman gentleman um, actor, I believe well, it's Victorian, apparently. Yes. Oh right. So well, completely out of context. Ah, would he be even more like Henry Gordon Jago yeah. in the original mm. form then? <laughs> yeah. So I guess the florid language would come from that uh, still. But yes, and, and apparently quite uh, it's one of his earliest commissions as well that Richard Mace comes from. It's not a sort of recent play that he's written at this point, but obviously it's a character right. that he remembers fondly. Mm. And yes, indeed, and he has very strong opinions on the character himself and apparently was not keen on... Um, forgotten his name now. Who's the chap who plays him? Michael Robbins. Michael Robbins. He wasn't... Am I right in thinking Eric wasn't keen on Michael Robbins' portrayal? Just like the actors apparently didn't enjoy working with him, poor Margot Robbins. Yeah. I think he does a good job. I think yeah. he does a good job. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I, it seems to be playing what's written, as far as I can tell. Hmm. And on the flip side, J&T, I'm assuming it would must be the character of Mace that J&T wasn't keen on when he apparently said, I, I'm not sure I like the visitation, it reminds me too much of the talents of Wing Chiang. Oh, really? Do you know that quote? No. Ah, hmm. I thought that was a famous one. Oh, because what you're supposed to react, how you're supposed to react is to say, hang on a minute, that's a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, whether Nathan Turner likes the talents of Wang Chang in itself, he obviously didn't want the program to be like that, did he, at this point? Mm. It it suggests that he was trying to get away from both the Williams era and um, any kind of, any of the excesses, in inverted commas, of of the Tom Baker era. Mm. So to the extent that he didn't want big, florid, theatrical larger than life characters I and mean, you could believe that couldn't you <laughs> it's it's a bit it's a bit un jnt though isn't it <laughs> <laughs> it's on later JNT, well I guess, he's a complicated but... person isn't he mm. yeah mm, i wonder mm. he's casting big florid actors to play against type as straight characters isn't he through yes. a lot of his era well, you know. yes i think he genuinely resisted making the program theatrical for a very long time and I don't know. We've got Bill Reed coming up next week, haven't we? Yeah, you're right. I mean, at, the, at this point, he's very much casting against type, as you say, with Beryl Reed, with Neris Hughes. It's, it's, mm. you know, they're not comedy characters, and they're not, yeah, what maybe what the audience would expect with those with those people in the roles. And as you say, Michael Robbins is another one that people will remember as a comedy actor rather than a straight actor. But he does, a, you know, as you say, a, a good job with this role. So. Does it also feel like one of those Doctor Who stories where a writer new to the programme scratches around for what they think Doctor Who is, even though they probably haven't watched it because they're a grown-up, even though they probably haven't watched it for a very long time? Does it feel like one of those? I mean, not in a bad way. The the ending, the twist ending, seems to me like the sort of thing that... Uh, yeah, that, a new writer comes up with. Yeah, mm. they think, oh, Doctor Who equals time travel equals... Oh, I know, I could get it. I could use it to explain away a, a great historical mystery. I can mm. explain what happened to the Mary Celeste. Have we done that one? All right, um, <laughs> Great Fire London. Atlantis. I'll tell you, I'll <laughs> tell you that, that the biggest mystery in the entire history of the English world... How did the Great Fire of London start? How could it yeah. possibly have started? How could that happen? How could yeah. a fire start? Yeah. 
in a city made of wood. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, no. I mean, it, <laughs> it wasn't really a mystery that needed answering, was it? And, no. Uh, so it's kind of a weak finale. But um, yeah. you know I have a problem with those. Not a problem. I'm just grumpy about them. Mm. Just on that, before we come back to... It's interesting that apparently they handled it so they don't explicitly say this is the cause of the Great Fire of London kids. Appar- mm. And apparently they just, like, they put the clues there on the grounds that anyone who, any viewers who were old enough to put two and two together would be old enough to recognise that it was fiction and that they weren't suggesting that Doctor Who really <laughs> started the Great Fire of London. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes. That's another issue, isn't it? Um, so to what extent? Always a concern, isn't it? Yeah. For the kiddie winks. Cause and effect and determinism. Mm. Um, are not things we generally look at in yeah, Doctor Who. But if the first Doctor, the first Doctor was pissing himself with laughter at the thought he'd started the uh, that he'd burned down Rome, wasn't he? Mm. Yeah. So well, not personally, but that it was essentially <laughs> his doing. <laughs> so if we, again, there you are. As as the first, so the fifth, as we always say. For anyone who isn't, you know, a student of history, then what they're actually seeing is. You know, a, a, a careless arsonist who's quite happy to see sentient creatures burned to death, which isn't necessarily a great, a great look either. Watching it again, and why are we starting at the end? But you know, we never well, do these things properly. Do <laughs> it is slightly alarming, even out of context. I've, I've got a feeling that if you, you know, if you watch this in sequence, yeah, having the, a big, cutting a big close up, the pterodactyls popping and mm. burning and yes. in the fire is. Rather unusual for Doctor Who, and, and takes takes you by surprise. Yeah. Is that in the script? Because I, I associate that sort of nastiness with um, the next few years under it's this a, it's this a very writer. Sayward, isn't it? Yeah. So, do you think that was in the script? And despite what must have been some expense to build an extra model to then just for that purpose. Does the Doctor actually have a plan in that final scene? I mean, it, it, I mean, it feels like they sort of burst into the room. They're not aware that the ter- other two pteroleptals are behind them, but, but then... But they should be. But Yeah, but then the two pteroleptals are utterly useless and you know, easily overpowered anyway. And then, oh, we dr- whoops, we've dropped the thing and caused a fire. Let's try and put it out. Oh, we can't. Oh, well, let's run away and they'll die in there anyway. I don't know. It, oh, it, oh it, and then, hang on, just we can make, take advantage of this to um, finish off the plague, get rid of yes. the rats. Mm. Oh. What is it they throw into the fire? Is it bats full of rats? Or is it... Yes. Um, it is. Yes. Right. Nice, nice. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah. he doesn't have a plan for how to deal with no. that part of the Terraleptal's scheme no. until the fire starts, which is accidental. Mm. Unless it isn't. <laughs> but, it must, but it must be. Yes. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's not particularly well paced, is it? That's the flip side of what I was going to say about the pacing, which is that I won't see the, you know, the three and a half episodes we get of... Heathrow, that's slightly misleading if I phrase it that way, but you know what I mean, yes. of rural West London. Are, I wouldn't say they outstay their welcome, but it's getting a bit samey. And the fact mm-hmm. that we then cut to a new exciting location, but just for 10 minutes at just most. Just for the last 10, yeah. Seems yeah. a bit careless. And they spent a lot of money, you know, a lot of money on that set and the filming. Yeah. Mm. Um, if this had been a Tom Baker story, we'd have probably had four episodes in the rural setting and switched to have, and have an extra two at the end, wouldn't we? Yes. Been, Yes. Talons all over again. Yeah. So it feels like it might be an attempt to do that, but mm. but on the other hand, it's a bit cack-handed and it feels like a code of the story rather than a denouement. Mm. Mm. And it's funny because because that episode is so short anyway, and you've got like a minute and a half's recap. Right. At the at the start of episode four. Yeah. Haven't you? There's a ridiculously long recap, mm-hmm. and I believe it still only runs to about twenty three minutes ten. Or something along the, along those lines. So it's it's not like there wouldn't have been a bit more room to have had a little bit more expansion of stuff. So I can only assume he didn't write any anything more because you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have done that if it, if I assume there wasn't stuff that ended ended up on the cutting room floor from the London bits. Put it that way. Moving to a new location should give you an opportunity to introduce some new elements to the story, mm, whether yeah. new characters or new. Something about the setting or the that can, will c- c- contribute, could propel it forward and contribute to the denouement. Well, mm. it does in the sense that it brings in the Great Fire of London and uses that to wrap up the entire story. 
in one fell swoop. But because it's trying to be coy and have the Doctor start the Great Fire accidentally, he, th he then, in the same hand, the same move, removes his agency. Mm. He just f tracks them down, follows them there, and the baddies almost fall into their own trap, essentially. Mm. And it doesn't feel like it's racing towards a denouement, does it? You know what I mean? When when mm. the Terraleptors escape and Doctor Who has essentially lost track of them, you could yes. that could be the halfway point, or, yes. or as mm. I said, the two thirds of the waypoint if this was a six parter. It doesn't mm. feel like we're nearly there. So I don't completely dislike the pacing of the first three episodes, but there there, there are some certainly moments when they spin their wheels. Much of episode mm. two feels a bit spinny to me, and of course most of Nissa's subplot in the TARDIS. And then it that catches up and runs towards a conclusion mm. kind of takes you by surprise. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think I enjoy the first three episodes, but I would agree with you. There's, it's a whole lot of nothing most of the time. I, 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 I mean, a whole lot of nothing works reasonably well in um, Pyramids of Mars, but, uh, but, but, I, but I suppose you, you're, you're continually learning a little bit more about what's going on in, in, in that scenario, whereas here, perhaps... Yeah, I mean, you know, the the, the plot is drip fed out, I suppose, here and there, but it, it yeah, it doesn't doesn't feel like it it amounts to all that much in retrospect. I don't know about you, but it's always a story that I want to enjoy slightly more than I do. Yeah, I, ne I never dislike it, but it, it's slightly frustrating because all the elements are there for it mm. to be a real cracker, and it's never quite clear to me what's missing. I was looking mm. at the the pacing and the the unfolding of the narrative, and trying to work out if it was really that much that inferior to your average who from other eras. I don't think, as you say, you, you can compare it to something like Pyramids of Mars and it isn't really. But they, stories that do do sort of thing better just have create a better an, an atmosphere. Hmm. You could just take this script and have, use, have a better director and it would come across much more strongly, I think. Hmm. I'd still want to tweak it. I'd want to remove all the, all hmm. the um, rather soapy interludes of teenagers bickering. But even with what we've got, if it was more atmospheric and the camera work was better framed mm. and the occasional action scenes weren't completely and utterly ludicrous yeah yeah i mean perhaps the the issue that we've got with this then is that you know if you think about something like pyramids of mars or indeed the talents of wang chayang you've got a series of great characters whereas in this you've got richard mace and nobody else mm. really yeah. that's yeah. that's worthy of being called a character uh, no, well, I'm, except possibly the Terraleptal leader, but he's a bit thin. I was trying to give I was trying to give Eric the benefit of the doubt and just and shift the blame mostly onto the director. But yes, of course, yeah. I mean, all the other townsfolk are complete ciphers. We don't really get to know anything about them. We don't care what, that they're having their minds controlled, or we don't mm. feel any joy when they return to normal. They're just yes, indeed, complete vacuum personality vacuums, aren't and they? And sadly the only well, the only other characters that are in it that, that actually appear to have some character are all the ones that are killed off at the start. Yes. Well, that's also, you've got very John, strange. You've got John Savadon. I say John Savadon's yes. in there and uh, people yes. like that. Well, imagine how much fun would if he'd stayed around and he'd... Yes. yes. Scenes with him and he could have been a double act. I can't quite imagine, but a double act with him and Mace. <laughs> mm. Bring him in my posset. Yes. Yeah. Well, if one of them, even if the sun had hidden out in the, um, or someone, or the, you know, someone else had yep. hidden yeah. out. But no, I mean that is actually quite incompetent. Mm. I think it's it's very strange from a production point of view because I mean I don't I don't know I would have thought you'd have to pay them quite a lot of money even though they're only in it for five minutes. Yeah. So maybe that's it. Maybe that's he's used up his budget for decent character actors <laughs> in the first, in a free titles <laughs> bit that contributes nothing, and then all we get yeah. is people stick on beards for the rest of the story. Yeah. I mean, it is it is beautiful. I mean, I mean, it, it's it, it's well worth having that five minutes at the start, but as you say, it, it's frustrating that it that you, you that you don't get anything like that thereafter, mm. with the exception of uh, of Mace. Yeah, you even get that the, the bloke off new tricks. Uh, he's the son, isn't he? The um, Anthony Carf, I think the name. Oh, the good actor. lord! Yeah. Um, you say it, yeah. Yeah. So it's um, yeah, it, 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 it's a great start that that just can't be quite sustained. Mm. It's not one. And getting back to the genesis of this, I mean, as I understand it, Saywood, uh, it was his his girlfriend at the time, Paula Wolsey, I believe was. There's a name to conjure with Cardinal Paula Wolsey. Cardinal <laughs> Paula Wolsey, yeah. 
She didn't do the pattern book. No, hang on, that was. No. <laughs> that was Joy Gammon. <laughs> that was Joy Gammon, but someone that was. She was she was peripherally involved in things somewhere, wasn't she? I think. Unless I'm imagining it, but anyway, she was apparently researching the architecture and the rebuilding of London after the Great Fire, and that was apparently what gave Sabre the idea of sort of doing something set in that period. And I think it all came from the the plague idea and working backwards. The plague coming to an end in the Great Fire. Mm. At least that was my understanding. But it's funny that for doing a... I don't, I don't know that much about what Sayward wrote in in his radio career. But it's it's funny that you come, come in and do a pitch, even pitch a pseudo-historical, or what we these days call a pseudo-historical, because there, there haven't been that many. There hasn't been one since... Horror of Fang Rock, I don't think, hmm. really. It was suggested, I think, that that you know that that was the example of him being a bit out of touch because there had been historicals when he'd watched the series. Yeah. Mm. I mean, was this a story that? So you I, you didn't recognise the anecdote about Nathan Turner not liking the tone, but um, is there any suggestion anywhere that he would rather not have made this story, but that they didn't have enough decent scripts and he was forced to? Mm. No, nothing that I've ever heard. The the suggestion was that it went down well with the hierarchy. Hmm. It was it was generally a well liked story. Good because it does feel like Doctor Who, does it not? Yeah. Mm. Indeed. As I say, the script could do with a bit of work. Hmm. It's there's kind of some fundamental problems that it it sort of hobbles itself at the start by not making the best of characters he's invented. But it's fine. There's enough decent characters. The plotting's good. It just needs, um, as well as the director not being able to conjure up the right atmosphere, the music kind of knackers it for me. We don't often talk about music in this era. I think it's mostly with historical stories that I find the Radiophonic Workshop stuff to stick out mm. like a sore thumb. Which composes this? This is Paddy Kingston. Yeah. Right. And is he Mr. Full Circle? Mr. Yes, Frontios, and also Frontios, yes, yeah. and also Mordred Undead. So when I hear this, I just think I should. I close my eyes. I think, oh, if this was full circle, this would work. If this was Frontios, this would work very well. Mm. But it completely ruins the feeling that for me that we're in. Maybe that's a failure of my imagination. Well, he, I mean, he starts off. I mean, the the initial music is very. You know, he's 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 trying to conjure up that kind of restoration era with the pacing of it. But but mm. but it does also sound very 1982. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's very evocative of of the era of Davison, I think, for me, but not necessarily of the sixteen sixties. Although I'm not quite sure what music is evocative of that era. I'm not sure there's much of it left. It's a bit more harpsichord, mm. and possibly <laughs> crumb horn. <laughs> <laughs> Where's Kerry Blyson when you need him, eh? Hmm. Well, there we go. Yeah, uh, so I was just checking that By the Sword Divided came later. That came that began in 1983. So, right. So it wasn't particularly anything that was in the in the air at the time. Although obviously this is sort of post-Civil War anyway. It's, it's a restoration by, by a hair. It seems, yeah. I was entertaining the idea of I was it influenced by... Mm. Is it Doctor Who latching onto something that's in the zeitgeist that there was some interest in that period, but not particularly. But I believe didn't say would end up effectively. Maybe that's what's partly could explain some of its issues. That I think Say would effectively ended up being his own script editor. I think by the time he'd by the time he'd written it, yeah. by the time it was completed and sort of ready to go into the script editing phase of things, Anthony. Reed Root had already Root, Root um, had already upped sticks and recommended Sayward for the job, hmm. and so he ended up being his own in terms of actually doing the job on this and and on Earthshock, and it was kind of a courtesy title that that Root stayed on as being the credited script editor to uh, to get around right BBC unhappiness with the usual thing about you know, mm-hmm. writers. Script editors commissioning themselves. Hmm. 
the end of part one is is a bit like part three of Death of the Daleks, isn't it? You know, in in that the the peril that they're in is a brick wall. <laughs> yes, they're not my favourite cliffhangers. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's, there's there's no Davison, but that's about it, really. I mean, mm. it's it, it does feel a little bit um, uh, melodramatic. Yes, it hasn't quite earned the earned the shock factor of like, there hasn't been enough sinister build up. I don't think to. To the idea, and then part two. Apparently, that's another the uh, not again line from Davison. That's mm. that's Davison doing the script editor's work of realizing ah, of realizing right. that. Hang on, two weeks ago, we had a yep. similar cliffhanger, and so mm. he so he said, "Don't you think I should comment on that?" Perhaps it's mm. just as well they didn't record completely out of order. Then, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'd end up with a sort of season twenty six scenario. Yeah, <laughs> good point. Yes. Well, or, again, he says we're referring to something that's going to happen in a month's time. Yes. Oh, no, not yet. Or something, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Still on the writing note, people yeah. often say that they they do like the villain. And it's so well written that I believe Michael Melia was cast not realising he'd be under a, a massive mask and mm-hmm. thought this was a character who would be playing, you know, with his own, with his own face in view. Mm-hmm. But then, having practised it, doing it properly, he decided to stick with it. Even when he was lumbering on all those, all those um, was this the first example of a mask, an animatronic, um, like a full-on am- animatronic thing? Can't think of any before. Hmm. Before this, it's quite effective. I've always. But that's the start of a Sayward thing, isn't it? To give his villains more little philosophical speeches. Hmm. And to it's a bit Sharon's them... Jack, isn't he? Yeah. And to actually yeah. have them challenge the Doctor in some way. Oh, sorry. That, well, that's yeah. Holmes, of course, but. <laughs> but you know, even his cyber leader mm. gets yeah. to have an argument, and Davros, of course, later on, mm. Mm. he's very keen to make sure that they, in between ranting and raving, that, that they actually have a halfway decent stab at a point of view mm. Mm. that might give the Doctor pause. That all starts here, and it, it does seem unusual. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the Terraleptal uh, leader has this recognizes pretty early on uh, that, you know, that he's up against something that that the Doctor and his companions can't be from this time and place. They they know too much and so on, you know, and makes that that deductive leap, which is, uh, as you say, makes him more of a character and less of a of a monster. Mm. I'm going to say this now because I'll forget if I wait till later on. But it, actually, just thinking about it, that reminds me of um, the way Shakespeare is portrayed in Shakespeare Code. He also recognises the Doctor mm. is a man out of time, mm. which yes. is a much it's played differently, giving that to Shakespeare, who was a man of his time, is even more impressive than the Terralipter recognizing a fellow alien. Mm. Yeah, and I, and I think I mean if you're going to, I don't, I don't want to spend the whole time hammering the writing, but but the other bit that's that's a bit sort of problematic for me is the android kills all the interesting characters outright very quickly at the start of the story, and then spends the next three episodes failing to kill anybody else and deliberately shooting wide of them on some some occasions stuns Adric yeah. and Tegan in, in episode two for some reason rather than killing them. So yeah, it, it's a, it seems a little bit inconsistent in that regard. It is. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I mean, well, I mean, I guess if the Terraleptor wants to interrogate them both, and he knows he's got two couches, so I suppose he wants to make sure he's got two of them to interrogate, then 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 perhaps it makes some sense. But it, it feels like they they haven't really explained what that you know what the ray is or or, or what it's doing or whatever. For all that, Eric Sayward will later go on to um, basically emulate Robert Holmes's approach to writing Who. That's the mm. best way to do it. It's interesting how many little touches that Holmes and he seems to, to have adopted here, even down, as well as, well, he's got Holmes in character in Mace, you, you could argue, mm. but no no Holmes in double act, mm. which is a... All these little asides, all these little re- sci-fi references to other places and times, Tim Clavic mines on Raga mm. and so on, that's all reminiscent yeah. of the kind of world, throwaway world building mm. yeah. that Bob was famous for. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. Maybe they did think in a similar way. It's unlikely that he remembered those sorts of details from having watched the programme five, six years earlier. Mm. It seems like, I mean, I guess we've, we've got a te- natural tendency to look at somewhat large characters and of say, course. oh, Holmesian, Holmesian. Yeah. Like, but, As if know. that never happens elsewhere in the world yes, of Yes, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And um, but yeah, I guess this is probably as close to you know sure. as probably the closest thing to Sayward unfiltered by or unaffect, unaffected by kind of exposure to Ian Levine. Or <laughs> well, the the broader world of Doctor Who, put it that way, as you're as you're going to get. So it probably is quite close to his his natural writing. It is, it is, and it's really got a bit of everything, a bit of a bit of everything that he ever does in his mm. time in the program. Good and bad is all here. The the clunky techno babble mm. is is here. The people describing what they're seeing and completely unnecessarily. Mm. Yeah, the unnecessary conflict which is apparently there but feels more like padding even though it has actually been written deliberately under a misguided belief that it constitutes drama mm. so, but at the same time some real joy with language mm. and an attempt to be rather more thoughtful than your average you know than you need to be for your average action adventure yarn so it's all there good and bad yeah, mm. True. yeah and i mean tim's often complaining about davison being in having no humor but i mean there there is there definitely is sardonic humor from the from fifth doctor in, in several parts of this story i mean it's not it's not laugh out loud funny it's not you know it's not going to um uh, have people rolling in the aisles but it, 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 it there's some nice touches that early tardis scene is actually one of the best of this entire era we get a lot worse after that mm. yeah <laughs> yes. yes and davison's improvising stuff and he, he this was recorded in between in between his two sitcoms i think mm. he had the second series of well he was doing holding in the fort and sink or swim yeah and this in between them so i think he did his first two so he's obviously on yeah in sitcom mode to some extent he's you know he's gonna be thinking about business and uh, stuff that he can add to it yeah which is good. and and of course um tristan is the comic relief in in your mm. creatures as well yes yeah just on the sayward and pterodactyl zone that's quite a nice idea in itself the the idea of the that the alien civilization that they they value beauty and mm. and you know that they generally create you know things that are lovely and and then you have a a criminal from that civilization it's it's nice to actually have that distinction that doesn't do an awful lot more with it but the idea that there's a the idea that there are non-uniform alien civilizations and that someone can be a renegade or yep. exile from one so not all of the others are like that is a it's a nice touch and you know mm. when we often run into very uniform like all all aliens from zarg thing like this yeah and the doctor does offer him a way out he offers mm. to take him somewhere else yeah which um rather than just immediately going into die horrible creature mode <laughs> <laughs> and as and to return to what you said the the pterodactyl has a reason for not what would be dropped off on some barren rock somewhere. I don't mm. want to just exist. Yeah. I, I want to live somewhere beautiful. Mm. So they are all actually behaving like creatures with distinctive rationales. Mm. Ironically, he does, he does that for the Gravis in a couple of years' time, doesn't he? He yeah. does, yes. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what three Terraleptors need with a whole planet, but, you know, that aside, yeah, agreed. Mm. There's just four of you, he says aghast, just like in the Shakespeare Code. The says, There's only three of you. <laughs> but yeah. um, neither of them play that really for a joke the way they do in Terror of the Zygons. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit big for just the eight of you. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. I would cut it down. I, I think if, with a story that's written to this standard, uh, three episodes would have been good. Mm. But it's four, so. Or alternatively, your suggestion, I suppose, and make it sort of two and two, or one or two and a half and one and oh, a half, well, or something. You know, there are different th levels of even fixing. Even three and one would have given the given the room to have a yeah, have introduced, introduced a helpful street urchin character in episode four yeah. in London. But we're talking we're talking about the sort of fixes that you would need to have done a bit a bit earlier on. Yes, from, that's when true. Eric was handing his first yes plot outline, you'd say, mm. well, no, I think we could, yeah, I think we can improve upon this. It's spinning your wheels here, but this bit's underdeveloped. We could, you know, three episodes with John Savadant, and then <laughs> Mace Mace takes them into London, and they make use of well, I don't know one of the theatres that's been closed down. You know, so there's actually some you know 
some stuff that's set up earlier on that mm. actually becomes yes. relevant. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I guess it had to start in a bake. Is it a bakery? Is it, does it yeah. actually do that whole bakers and pudding lane thing? I, I yes. wasn't really paying much yeah. attention by the end. Well, I mean, you can't really but, tell that it's a bakery. It's not like they've got loaves of bread lying around, but yeah. Well, you could, yes, you should be should be shoveling the boxes of plague rats into the bread oven, not into a fire that he started. <laughs> anyway, there's all sorts of things you could fix at that stage. I was just thinking, but but there's, if we're given this script, then I just think it's it's the director that lets mm. it down. I want to make that perfectly clear. <laughs> it's directed quite badly. Yeah, I mean, it, so so I guess on the one hand as we've alluded already there are lots of things about it that are beautiful so you, you i mean so clearly you know they, they've engaged a bunch of very competent people in in mm. constructing costumes and glass shots and sets and all this mm. kind of lark which yeah. you know is part of the director's job but then when it comes to actually maneuvering things around it it is a bit duff you know there's as you say the the fight scenes are are, are Duff, there's, there's Adric doing his um, Susan act. Uh, I mean, to be fair, it just doesn't it doesn't play to Peter Moffat's strengths, whatever they are. That we've said before, State of Decay is the closest that he ever gets to exercising his strengths for um, hmm. directing good actors, speaking theatrical dialogue, and directing as if they were on stage. Yeah. <laughs> he gets away with that, but we don't want Doctor to feel stagey if he's not supposed to be. Hmm. We don't want it to feel like. Amdram, when you've got all the resources of the BBC at your disposal, and you could do, and we know you can do so much better. Mm. We want Paddy Russell on this, or David Maloney. Mm. They'd they'd shake it up. Yes, yeah. Yes, talking of Adric and his um his and various fights and things like that. Apparently, Stuart Fell is um stunt doubling around in this, and apparently, apparently the bits when the androids entering the TARDIS at the end. So apparently, <laughs> Stuart Fell is doubling for Adric to run up behind the. Android and and thump him in the back and then kick him up the bum and apparently that required that was too um <laughs> too 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 much of a stunt for Matthew Waterhouse to um <laughs> to pull off but then when Matthew Waterhouse gets thrown to the ground by the android uh, that mm. is Matthew Waterhouse <laughs> so it's a bit odd oh my good answer so yeah Stuart Favoya up the bum kicking needs yeah. <laughs> Stop waggling your ass, Stuart. Yes. <laughs> Remember that building, one? Okay. You know, yes. <laughs> Good, I'm glad I didn't dream that. that would... yeah. <laughs> Janet Fielding gets another chance to do her possessed acting, um, although not quite as um, significantly as with the Mara. No, and she doesn't turn to the camera and say, not again, because <laughs> she's, she's not paying attention as closely well, as that's, 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 that she hasn't. She doesn't know that it's, that's happening yet, you see. Mm. It's, it's, it's a problem with the... The oh yes, of <laughs> And there's quite a there's, there's some chunky sections that have no dialogue as well. So I imagine that must be a bit frustrating, um, Giles, on your um, C ninety or whatever. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was, I just yeah, I was wondering what. But I mean, I did have the book because I was going. Oh, true. Because yes. um, going back, that was I have sort of treasured memories. The thing I must have gone to the Longley exhibition. That's oh, yeah. that summer. And I, th- I think I got the book, and I've definitely still probably got the photos around here somewhere of the android and the pteroleptor. I'm pr- pretty sure they were both on display mm. there. I'd have to go through my negatives and uh, find them. But yes, I think I picked up the book there in the shop at Longleat to my great excitement. Mm-hmm. So that would have helped. But yes, some of those little Keystone Cops moments are... Well, not quite Keystone Cops, but yeah, they're a bit hard to follow. Is there anything else that you've got to say about the visitation? The only other thing I have to mention, uh, which is only a, is a shameless lift from the um, DVD notes, is that apparently the part of Mace was originally offered to Freddie Jones, mm. which bears thinking about. Yes. He'd have been good. But then I think Michael Robbins is good. I don't, yeah. I don't understand the dissing. There's a couple <laughs> of lines that suggest he's meant to be a bit more... Portly than than he is, yeah. But yeah, um, yeah. which you'd think they'd have maybe trimmed slightly. This, I mean, you really are getting a feeling from some dialogue that he's like a bit of a Jago knockoff, but mm. that's presumably completely coincidental. Yes, mm. it's a bit odd that he complains about his mobility and his his frame and so on when we when we first meet him up a tree and 
episode one, don't we? Mm. Yeah. He's clearly not that um, not that feeble. Yeah, I came across a one of these sort of you know wiki type sites discussing the visitation today that mentioned about half a dozen other character actors who'd been considered for the part of Richard Mace as well. Oh, so, okay. so we we suggest that. I mean, either it's true, and and they went through every character actor, you know, in uh, in Britain, and then um, uh, hit on um, on Michael Robbins at the end, or I don't know, or, or maybe they were just a few ideas that that came to nothing. Not Laurence Olivier on this occasion. No, 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 <laughs> no. no, no, no <laughs> they were saving him for not, the music. Not Larry on this occasion. No. <laughs> Shame. Yeah. That I would have paid good money to see. Mm. Any other thoughts, Paul? No. No. Okay. Well, in which case, I, th- I I guess we should probably move on to the other one. But if you want, to, we can pause briefly. Okay. See you shortly. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime. Here's a clip from my other podcast. Okay, well, let's hit the theme tune. Hello and welcome to If It's Hurting, It's Not Working, our podcast all about work, why we work, how we work and what makes a great job. So it's time to introduce our guest, Sean West. Hello, Sean. Hi, Emily. Hi, Richard. Yeah, so welcome. Welcome, Sean, to If It's Hurting, It's Not Working. So, Sean, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and introduce yourself to our, our listeners? Yeah, sure. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm Sean West. I'm uh, the Chief Finance Officer here at Arkiva. I was born in Australia, but I've lived in the UK for the last uh, 22 years and now call the UK home. Uh, I live in South London with my wife and I've got two small children uh, of the age of uh, seven and four. So uh, when I'm not managing finances to do with our telecommunications and broadcasting infrastructure, I'm running around on the infrastructure of two small children under the age of seven. That's certainly enough to fill your life and keep you busy. Indeed. So you're a Chief Finance Officer today, but can you take us back to your first job and what that was, please? Yeah, sure. Look, Emily, it seems like an eternity ago now, but many, many, many moons ago, um, my very first job was actually as a musician, and specifically as a classical musician. I used to play the clarinet, I used to perform in orchestras, and I also used to teach. Sure. So I guess that then begs some more questions. So how did you did you move away from, from that then into, into working in finance? Well, as with all things uh, with many people's lives, Richard, uh, by accident, um, I think is probably the case. So, you know, I spent a lot of time, as I say, working, playing in orchestras and teaching, was expected to go into a sort of professional career in music. And actually, I got I got mentored by someone at a fairly early age who used to, used to play in the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, actually. And I was just talking about life one day with, uh, with that particular individual. I asked him for his advice. If he had, if he had his time again, what what would he do? He said to me, "Look, uh, you know, music is great, but it's a tough gig. So, um, you know, try your hand at other things as well. You always got the opportunity to come back." And in my case, my my other calling in life, I guess, was numbers. And so I went off to uh, university today at finance and economics degree. Out popped the other side, working in in finance and financial services and finance functions in corporates, and and frankly, never came back. So I. I heeded that mentor's advice 50% of the way. Is performing something you'd recognise as, as a characteristic that you've got? Yeah, look, I think it is. I think I think it's about not just performing, Richard, and particularly on the musical side of things. I think it's performing as a team, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not all about you. You can be the best performer in the world and be the best yeah. instrumentalist, but the reality is to actually give someone pleasure or to deliver an outcome or an output that's you know what people want whether you're playing in a duet there's two of you whether you're playing in an orchestra where there could be up to 80 80 plus people of you you realize the importance that every single person plays mm. and i think if you ask me what is the one thread that, that takes me from the, what, what might seem a, a completely unrelated <laughs> set of roles uh, from my past into today. It's that, you know, the importance of everyone playing playing a part. <laughs>
are you going to do your line, Richard? Oh, sorry. Uh, if I was actually looking at a script, it would be good, wouldn't it? <laughs>